our theme for the day, Luke chapter 18. One verse here, verse 31, I have for you, where it says, and I pause, you know, dot, 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 to wait for this slide to advance. There you go. And uh, I was trying to, I told him I might get rewarded if he, uh, if he could be, if he could be uh, quicker on the slides. I mean, I, there's candy in the back still, right? Back in the office. See, I, it, works on, it works on James. I figure it might work for everybody else, but... Here we are. It ain't much, but let's just look at this. It, it means everything for what we're talking about today. It says this. Then he took the twelve aside, and he said unto them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that was written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be fulfilled. Everything written will be fulfilled. Remember last week we were talking about he set his face, so he was determined, and he knew what was there. So he knew this was no picnic. He knew that going on up to Jerusalem didn't mean uh, that he would be welcomed. I mean, he was welcomed by common people because his, in, his entry was triumphal when it came to a whole lot of the common people. But not when he got past them to the you know like the important people with the with the power and money and all that. They didn't. They didn't give him that welcome, did they? He knew what was going to await him there. So that was the determination that he had, the obedience to the will of God to do it anyway. But here, here a different theme that we have, where he's headed towards Jerusalem. He knows how the last days will play out. But now he's saying, we're going up there, and there's going to be a whole lot of fulfillment. Fulfillment. That's, that's the theme I want to hammer on today, then. Fulfillment. The season of Lent is packed with fulfillment. If you read the entire New Testament, the whole thing, some of you have, read the I'm talking New Testament now. If you read the whole New Testament, you will, even if you read, even if you do not turn back to the Old Testament books at all, you will nevertheless read. Uh, you, if you get done with it, you will have read, I should say, over some 250 plus verses from the Old Testament. Well, wait a minute. You said I didn't look at the Old Testament. No, no, no. I'm saying in the New Testament, you will see that much Old Testament quoted to you as you read the New Testament. Because that's how frequently the writers in those New Testament books directly quote things from Psalms and prophets, sometimes the narratives, sometimes obscure things, sometimes things you recognize, you sing, we sing about them, and you would know them really well all the time. And, and if, we, uh, if we count partial quotations or indirect quotations or summaries or sort of like just references that are not direct quotes, so then, it, then it goes up over a thousand. So you will learn a whole lot of those Hebrew scriptures just from reading the New Testament because that's how much of it's in there. And a lot of that has to do with fulfillment, not just reflection and uh, teaching moments or saying, hey, remember that time when uh, Jeremiah said this? That was pretty cool, right? Yeah, that was a good one. Anyway, on to what I was saying. It's not like it's disconnected. It's, it's fulfilled. There's a thread of continuation. The theme, a big part of the theme of the new covenant is that not just... Hey, here's another one. The other one, that, that, 
That, that former covenant is pretty good. Here's another one. Two is better than one. It's more than just that there's two. It's that there's a fulfillment of the old one. That the new one is, is it surpasses and completes. It accomplishes the old one. The old one was looking for it. Was waiting for it to be completed. And so that is the notion of fulfillment. And that's what we're about. The law and the prophets. We read them still. We don't discard them, do we? Now you hear them read here. Maybe in some places they think that stuff's old and those books are long. So we just don't dabble in those much. We're Christians after all. Go down to the synagogue. They'll read from the Torah. We don't do that here. But that is not the Christian way to do things. No, no Christians around the world have thought that way really. Well, this, probably some exceptions of a few who have felt that way. But for the most part, you will not find Christians carrying around New Testaments only. By and large, Christians are carrying Bibles with whole Testaments, old and new, and all those books. That's how we see it. The Law and the Prophets. We read them, but we know that they point to Christ. We know that they look ahead. They've got fulfillment. We're aware of this. And so the people of Israel knew you know, they, they would, for example, read something like Psalm 118, which we, we know a lot of Psalm 118. Psalm 118 says the following, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them. Give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So we know much of that, don't we? You recognized it. And the people in Israel would have known it pretty well. And so their ears would have perked up, for example, when they heard Jesus in Matthew 21 say, Have you never read the scriptures that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? And that this was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. When they hear Jesus say that, those are not strange words to them. They would think, oh, yeah, that's the song. And Jesus did this repeatedly, did he not? He did this repeatedly. He was always quoting these things. Remember how Jesus began his public ministry. When he went into the, uh, went into the synagogue as a young guy. And remember they took out the Isaiah scroll. He read the Isaiah scroll. And then he, what did he say to the people after he read it? He said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That's how he sort of began, launched his public life by proclaiming in a synagogue with the scroll being read of the prophet by, by saying right then and there to those people, fulfillment time. And that characterized the whole of his ministry and his teaching. Fulfillment all the time. Read through the Gospels and notice how many times he says things like, have you not read where it says? And, and, uh, and he's not saying that to belittle the common people. He's usually always saying that to the so-called experts because they studied formally, you know, 
And they're supposed to be the real scholars of these things. And yet he would say to them, ain't you guys read this stuff? <laughs> I mean, don't you read too good? I know you went, I know you got all schooled up on these things, but I'm, I'm trying to connect these dots. You're very stubborn. You won't hear it. And sometimes the gospel writers will explain. They'll talk about a thing that happens and then they will say, this took place in order to fulfill what had been written. And they'll quote something from one of the prophets or somewhere. You'll see that a lot too. And so the question is why? Why all the, why this emphasis? Why the fulfillment and these quotations and the emphasis on these things being brought to an accomplishment? Well, Jesus was not just an extraordinary teacher, healer, wise man, and you know, great and powerful moral example. He was he was those things. But he was not just those things. I mean, he was more than those things. There have been other, you know, moral examples and good teachers and wise persons uh, in history, but Jesus was more than that. Jesus was prophesied and anointed. He he was a he, he played a central role in what we call redemptive history. There, I don't know how many other how many other uh, great leaders of any kind we could say that about. They might have been wise, and they may have done some great things, but there's no other one that I would look at and say. This person is the centerpiece of all of his, the history of God's doing and unfolding of redemption for man. You don't say that about anyone else. So all of Israel understood the concept that, that there was coming someday. They all had this notion. An anointed king. And there was a word for that. And that word was Messiah. There was an anointed king coming. David was a great king. We look back at him. But there's another one even better. He's coming too. He's gonna, that throne will be sat on again by one of us, someone from our, some, someone with, uh, who comes from the, one of the tribes, specifically Judah. And he'll sit on that throne. And that's going to be a great time. And that's going to be the Messiah, Mashiach, anointed person, anointed. And, and they had this idea. In their minds, you know, it's funny because the um, the passage that you heard John read earlier about Barabbas, we know that story, but you know, some, a lot of uh, a lot of historians will say that Barabbas was not just some crazy, wild-eyed, murderous psycho. It's kind of how you picture him, maybe, but that in fact Barabbas had been a Messiah figure. There had been a few of these guys that Barabbas had been one of those. Like a a revolutionary leader, that's why he ran afoul. But kind of revolutionary leader that's willing to do some violence, you know, to to make a revolution happen. You always got to beware revolutionary leaders because they usually will promote violence. Well, Barabbas, if he he was that, and by the way, his name interestingly means... Son of the Father, Bar Abbas. 
If he was that, that would help explain why the people called out for him. You know, give us the... We want that Messiah. Not this guy. We want that guy. We want that guy who looks like he's just about crazy enough to help us take matters in our own hands. He's the powerful, charismatic leader who will just take over the government. And that's how that's going to work. That's what we want. If that's true. But, of course... Barabbas didn't fulfill the prophecies, did he? he? He wasn't the guy. And this concept, this is this is why Jesus quoted those things all the time. These messianic references, these prophetic references to himself throughout the Gospels. Because the people around him knew the scriptures. So when he quoted them, they recognized them. And especially the religious leaders who were out to get him, who wanted to sort of show that this guy's nothing. He's not what he claims. And Jesus was armed to back, to, to argue from the scriptures that in fact he was. He would school them in these ways. And incidentally, you and I, you go out into the world and the world looks at you with a skeptical eye. Your best bet in terms of the ground you stand on and your appeal to authority is to know and quote the scripture, particularly from religious people. There are religious people, just like in Jesus' day, who um, who will create problems for the church. Sounds funny. Well, religious people, they're the good guys. You know, well, you haven't read the Gospels too closely. And not always the good guys. And you know, most people are religious people, I might add, in some way or another. And it can be degrees of false religion. The, the religion of, of, of a lot of people can be wildly false or it can be closer to what's true, but still off. And this can be an issue and a problem. And when it is, you should follow the example of your Lord. And, and instead of uh, trying to master whatever rhetorical flourishes you can come up with, you ought to be running behind the... Uh, behind the fortress of Scripture. That's your foundation. Be like Jesus. Let, Especially in religious discussions with people who claim to be in some way or another Christian people. Be the one who's saying, it is written, have you not read? You know, I, I often mention all those years that I spent out in Utah that was a context where you might well imagine I found myself saying more or less a lot of times in various discussions, have you not read? Do you not know that it says right here? You've got That's the authority. You, you've got no authority on your own. And so Jesus would appeal to Scripture to show his fulfillment. You know, Jesus did all the miracles, and the miracles are what wow people. Rightly so. Miracles are amazing. And so he did all of these miracles. And what does it call them? It calls them signs. Right? Because the point of miracles, as we say a lot, was not just so that Jesus could, uh, I don't know, get a lot of love from people and feel their positive energy toward him. He liked to see their eyes get big. Uh, none, none of the reasons why we might imagine if you had those kind of powers and you, you're a sinner, you might be tempted to, to uh, 
you might be tempted to show off. I know, probably not you, but person next to you or someone else out there might be tempted to show it off a little bit. The motives might not be entirely pure for when, when and how you would utilize that power. But Jesus didn't have that problem. And so his motives were pure to utilize the powers that he had. And his motives were what exactly? To show them with signs. Because, so, so the signs, the miraculous deeds he did, were a witness to his divinity. Because an average dude can't do that. So if he says, I, I saw Satan fall like lightning. You know, and if he says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Uh, that's real big talk. And, and blasphemous to the ears of most people of the day. So how, how can I know that you're not just a nut job saying those wildly outlandish things? Well, to show that, he would say, Behold, get up and walk to the man who had been born unable to walk. And in this way, this, is, this bears a kind of witness to the fact that, oh, he, he is not like the rest of us. There is a divine power that works through this man. I've never seen anything like this before. So the miracles are assigned to point to his deity. But in a similar way, the the quoting of these scriptures is also a witness to his identity and his authenticity as the true Messiah. You see this parallel there. It's a similar kind of evidence you might say, well, that doesn't impress me as much as a miracle. Okay. But it's still important. He believed that it was vitally important that he show his opponents and the common people all around that what he was doing as they gathered around, they were amazed watching him, listening to him, that they could see that, that he truly was the one that was promised long ago. And so all throughout everything that's happening to him, we're constantly reminded this was foretold. You know there aren't. You don't see this across the board in a lot of a lot of religions, even even a lot of the religions of the world. If you look at a lot of the uh, the big religions of the world, this is one feature you don't have much of. You don't see a lot of this idea of careful fulfillment of things from centuries before. This sort of prophetic unfolding. It's a very unique thing. Well, Jesus at one point really gave it to these leaders. I want you to look at what might be the most direct, confrontational way that he put this. Look here with me at John chapter 5. Something that he says. And this, this, is, this is really being blunt, okay, right here. He says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice, he's talking to the religious leaders now, his voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He couldn't really be much clearer than that, could he? 
you guys are studying hard. That's good and all, but you can't see what's right in front of you. Well, what things did Jesus fulfill? Uh, let's consider this question. You read uh, the book of Acts, but the early church, and then you read the letters, the apostles write instructions to the church. Uh, why don't we see? I mean, I mean, I mean, the book of Acts follows the church, and, and early on, they're all Jews. They're all Israel, you know, in Israel. Early on, these are most of the most of the apostles and the letters written by primarily people with the Jewish background. Paul writing so much of them, and he being, you know, an expert. Consider the question: Why, in all of that, do we never see the apostles or the believers emphasizing the temple? The temple was central, of utmost importance. God ordained. Why don't they emphasize that? What about the priesthood? They never talk about how important it is, the role of the priest, how you go, what he does, his function. The priesthood was a powerful um, and, and central institution. Or the sacrifices that were required by the law given by God. They don't ever do it. They don't even require a circumcision of the people, which is a covenant sign. And all those food laws you read about. And all the Jewish holy days. You just don't see Paul emphasizing that. He's writing about the most important things that these churches should know. And he doesn't emphasize those as things they should be doing. I th well, now you're thinking, well, I know why. Come on. But it's worth considering just to think about. That is the question we're asking. Because that points to the, to the answer to the question of what was fulfilled. What was fulfilled? Jesus, you know, as, as he's, he's looking at the final days he will spend, the culmination of his life on earth and his ministry among the people, and he's moving toward this kind of date with destiny uh, in Jerusalem. And as he does it, there are some things that, that he is going to fulfill. So I'll just show you a few things here. Here are just a, just, here's just a few of the, of the, of the most important Theological things that are fulfilled in Christ. Just briefly look at a few of these. So there's the throne. This is the Messiah. This is the Messiah uh, angle, right? The Messiah was essentially thought of as a king by the people. He's going to come in the, in the pattern of David and be a great king. So the throne, the office of king is fulfilled in Christ, ultimately and fully. Israel needs no more kings after this one comes. He sits on that throne, and there's no room for any more, any other kings on that throne. And he occupies it for good. So that the office of king, he holds forever. King Jesus. And also priest. He is king and priest. The all-important office of high priest and in Israel, high priest was way up there. It was a very important role. This was the one person qualified to go back there behind that veil. No one else better dare try. Only he gets to go back there. And he goes just that one time, that all-important time for atonement in the holiest place. He's the high priest. Up, you know, sort of the top of the pyramid of the entire priestly class. Now Jesus is the high priest. 
He's the priest. He's the only one that's required to exist. You guys remember now all that good theology we dug out of Hebrews. Not too long ago, a couple of years maybe. Hebrews is a book you got to go back to sometimes. Great book. And of course, the title lets you know that it was written specifically to people with the Jewish background who understand all the theology of the Old Covenant. It's written to them. And its express purpose, it's very clearly laid out, the express purpose of that book is to say to them, everything you know, everything revealed in the past, everything, that, all that you worship, it is all fulfilled and completed in the superior one. Christ, greater than all the kings that were ever on the throne, greater than all the priests that ever came, served and died, greater than all the prophets that ever spoke and taught, and foretold the future. Greater than all of them. Greater than any sacrifice that was ever brought into the temple. And its blood put on the altar. Greater than everything. That's the purpose of that book. And in it, remember, it sort of lays it out. Because it says, Jesus came. And during the high holy days. During those days where the people were all coming to Jerusalem. Bringing the best lamb they have. To take so that it could be taken in, its bloodshed for the atoning of their sins during that time of year. We know that because, as we said earlier, um, this is Passover era time of year. Jesus shared that meal, and he there was there's fulfillment even in the when we take communion, we're we're showing a fulfillment. You know, we're showing it. And, and I encourage everyone who can, you can make it to come to that Seder meal. Because when we do that, it carefully and explicitly demonstrates fulfillment all the way through it. And so, as Hebrew says, Jesus acts as the high priest when he comes. And he acts as the sacrifice. Which is kind of bizarre to Jewish ears probably. Huh? He is the sacrifice and acting as the priest who brings the sacrifice, the sacrifice being himself. That's what it says. Because he's the only one qualified to be the perfect high priest. He has no sin and he never dies. Every high priest served the office until he died. And, he had, and someone else had to take over and become the high priest. But this high priest, he don't die. He lives forever. He lives forever to make intercession. And and there's no he could find no sacrifice pure. You look, you scan the whole earth for that righteous man, you know, like Lot. Maybe I'll find just one, and God can spare the city. But there was none righteous, no, not even one. And so the only qualifying, pure, unblemished blood sacrifice was himself. The only lamb that could qualify to cover the sins of all. I could, uh, I could, on my best day, being as Christ-like as possible, try to obey the Scripture and to love enough that I might lay down my life for you. Lord, my life for his or hers. I will atone for their sins. But the problem is I'm not qualified. I would, be, I would have to die for mine. Can't die for yours. But Jesus was qualified to die for all. One for all. 
His blood covers how many sins? All of them. A multitude. And so, Hebrews is all, tells this, lays this out. Full scale fulfillment. And remember the veil. Torn and gone. And so the holy place is now opened up. And in fact, you know, do you know uh, that the office of priest is not talked about in the New Testament? Now, some people will sometimes ask, well, how did it turn out that in the early church, particularly, particularly as it headquartered in Rome and over in the East, we did have priests? You, you had priests. Well, okay, the cliff note on that, or if you like, the clint note on that, is that the word, the Greek word for presbyter. You know what that means, right? Presbyter is elder. That's all it means. The adjective is presbyteros. Presbyteros. So some of us in this room are more presbyteros than others. Right? And and if you're very, very presbyteros, you might think, man, getting old ain't no fun. And that's a true story. However, However, there, there, is, there is something that the Bible does give certain esteem and honor to one who is presbyteros. That word, presbyteros, hmm, when you start carrying it over then to Latin, you get, you get these versions, you get the shortened version of a prester. You're starting to see where this is going. The English word priest was actually rooted in that word. Because the, the Greek word for priest sounds nothing like that at all. <laughs> it's the same word for temple. Kind of. Temple. Kind of means something like temple guy. Temple servant. There is no office of priest ordained specifically in the New Testament. Read it. Let me know if you find one. Search them all. Ah, but you may find the word priest. You will find the word. You won't find an office. You will say, and then God has appointed and given gifts to men, some to be apostles, some evangelists, some teachers, some priests. It doesn't say that. But it does use the word priest. The primary, the primary use of the word priest is in the Gospels when it's talking about the Jewish priests. The Jewish priests. But there is another use. There is another use. Peter uses it. And who does he call priests? Look around. All use. Allians. That's who he calls me. If you, if you are in Christ, you are a priest. You approach God the way the priest used to. Because you don't have to stand way outside and say, Here, priest, go in there for me and make things right for me with God. Show him how good I brought the best lamb I got. Get my sins forgiven, please. No, no, you, you can go boldly. You can ask forgiveness now. Because the ultimate sacrifice, you ain't bringing it. It already came. 